and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I'm Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for another great episode today. But before we get to today's guest, I want to let you know how you can help us out here at the podcast. First of all, thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. Thanks for your support. If you have shared these conversations on social media, thank you for that. If you have not, please go ahead and do so. It really helps us as we continue to build out the podcast. and It helps us expand our reach. The other way you can help us is by going over to patreon.com slash intentional performers. And over there, you can subscribe to the show by giving as little as $2 a month and as much as $10 a month. We really appreciate those of you that continue to support the podcast and make this thing go. So thank you for being here and thanks for listening. Now to today's guest. So Coach Gary Williams is somebody that if you grew up in the Maryland area, you knew about. Growing up in this area, we loved our Maryland basketball. And I was growing up just at a time where Gary's teams were really reaching their peak. So when I was a junior in high school, uh, Gary took the Terps to the Final Four, and I actually was in, intent- in attendance in Minneapolis, Minnesota for that game. And then the next year, he led them to a national championship. So it was an amazing time to be a University of Maryland fan. And he really grabbed this area uh, by the horns and people in this area loved their basketball and certainly loved not only the winning, but also the style and the intensity in which Gary's teams played with. So in this conversation, we're going to learn about Gary's journey. We're actually going to find out about some of his coaching outside of the basketball world. And we're going to learn about his mindset and how he approached basketball as a player and then as a coach. And you'll find out about Gary that he really valued work ethic, hard work, people that would play with effort and intensity. And he coached that way too. So in a lot of ways, he helped build a culture and an intensity with University of Maryland and their basketball program. So I know you're going to love this conversation. And without further ado, I'm excited to present to you Coach Gary Williams. Coach, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Excited to chat with you. I saw you at Harris Teeter across the street, and I was thinking, man, it would be great to have Coach on the podcast. And I think I said this to you at the Harris Teeter when I blindsided you, but growing up in this area, you know, Maryland basketball was a big deal. And so I was a junior in high school when you guys went to the Final Four, 
And then I was a senior in high school when you guys won it all. So I think people that are my age really grew up with Maryland basketball at the forefront of our basketball existence, especially at our age. The Washington Bullets weren't a winner, for lack of a better word. And I know we loved Maryland basketball. I went to Maryland basketball camp as a kid and love that experience as well. So this is going to be fun for me. Hopefully it's fun for you as well. Uh, and what I'd love to start with you is when did basketball first come into your life? When when can you remember your first basketball memory? Well, I can remember uh, growing up in South Jersey playing in a league when I was nine years old. And I was just like everyone else. You ran around, you ran after the ball, <laughs> you know, and the ball was loose quite a few times. And you, you had a lot of fun. I, I, had a, I had a coach, his name was Al Ferner, who played for LaSalle, which was only 25 minutes away over to Plester in Philadelphia. Um, and he, he'd get up Saturday morning, come in and, and work with our guys. And I always remembered him. He, he was like my first coach of anything. And uh, he really impressed me that he cared that much that as a college student, he would get up and, you know, come into gym nine o'clock Saturday morning and, you know, work with a bunch of guys who didn't know how to play. So um, I appreciated that. And uh, that, I think a positive experience like that early really helps. So that's kind of like why you like something because you enjoyed it while you were there. And, you know, it just kept going from there. You know, it's interesting. Before we fired up the mics, we were talking about golf. And I think one of the challenges golf has is that it's hard. And when kids are starting out, they can't hit the ball very far. And they have to really stick with it and work on it and work on it. Whereas basketball is more intuitive. There's a hoop, there's a ball, you bounce the ball, you, you shoot it in the hoop. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think that's one of the things that appealed to me about basketball. I was never, you know, a big social guy. You know, my energy was always into sports. And, you know, you had a ball and uh, you had a basket. You didn't need anybody else. And I, I always liked that. And I looked at it as a chance to get better than other people because, you could put whatever time you wanted into it and you, you gradually became a better shooter or you, you, you know, back then you had to read a lot. You, there weren't a lot of games on television. There was one NBA game on a week and it was always the hated Boston Celtics. If you grew up around Philadelphia and, uh, you know, it was Bill Russell and watching him play and all those things, you know, you have your dreams, you know, from what, what you do when you're young and you hope someday you could be like those guys and, uh, and and so you you know whatever drives you drive you and I, there was just something about the game of basketball that appealed to me because um, it's it's such an individual game but to be to be a good team you have to play together and I always like that combination. And did you have siblings? Did your parents were they into sports? Yeah, it's funny. My, I came from uh, my grandfather uh, played semi-pro baseball like back in the twenties or whatever. Um, but other than that. Neither of my parents were athletes and played in high school. My brothers never played any sports. And so I was kind of an outlaw, you know, in my own family uh, doing all that. And, you know, they, they thought it was nice and everything, but it would never amount to anything. And I know my father, he, he served in World War II. And I'm sure he, because he worked uh, from the time he was like a freshman in high school till he went in the service. And I'm sure he looked at it as, as as a waste of time because I could have been working and making some money, and we didn't have any money. And and so, my enjoyment always was, you know, playing instead of going to the movies or something like that. And you know, I, I was envious of some kids that I grew up with because they had money, uh, more money than I did. 
but that's always kind of a driving thing. I think that's been the sport of basketball. If you look at the history of basketball, in the 30s and 40s, it was always that underclass that, you know, became successful at basketball. And your brothers, where are you in the order? You said you have I'm brothers. a middle child, a dreaded middle child. Me and, too. <laughs> uh, my, my older brother, he's only 16 months older than me. He uh, went into the Marines. He, he should have gone to college, but there was no money. So he went in the Marines and lives in Greensboro, North Carolina. And my youngest brother, who was five years younger than me, is in Bakersfield, California, and just retired. Got it. And was it ever clear for you that basketball could get you to go to college? Because you said before that your older brother should have gone to college but didn't have the financial ability. Did that ever come into the conversation with you? Not, and not till late. Um, I thought I was going to be a major league baseball player. You know, growing up, I that that was my dream uh, to play major league baseball. But by the time I was a freshman in high school, I, I kind of got the idea that. Um, Basketball was something that I really loved to do. And so in terms of having goals to uh, use basketball to get somewhere, that didn't happen until about ninth grade where my freshman coach, a guy named Neil Thompson, was r really the first person that told me that uh, in, a, in, in a tough way, that if you continued to work and you know stay focused, you had a chance to play basketball in college. And you know, f for being in a family where nobody went to college, that didn't really hit home until I got a little older. And really what what drove me to that was it was the next place to play basketball. It wasn't like, I, oh, I need to get an education. I, you know, I want to be a business major. That, that never came into play. It was just, where do we play next after high school? Well, college. Okay, I, I want to go to college. And did, what values did mom and dad pass down to you and your brothers? Be honest, not many. Um, they split when I was in ninth grade, and it wasn't a friendly split. And back then, uh, in the early '60s, in the town I grew up, you, you didn't get divorced, no matter how bad it was. You know, home life—you didn't do that. So I always—I don't know how other people looked at me. I, I think sometimes you get the wrong impression of how people look at you. But I always felt that they looked at me as kind of funny because my parents got divorced, and they never saw my parents they never my friends never came over to my house or anything like that so it was kind of different growing up but at the same time I think that drove me a little bit to be successful because when you walk on a basketball court it doesn't matter you know you, you can be the richest person in the world or the poorest and if you can play you can play or if you can't play you, you don't play so um, I always enjoyed that part of uh, basketball so you mentioned coaches, your freshman coach, you know, saying, hey, you actually have some talent, but you're going to have to work your tail off. Were there other people that helped impact you or, or shape who yeah, you after, became? after that year, um, the varsity coach at the, at the high school I was at, John Smith, I, I still correspond with him. He's retired to Florida a long time ago, but in his 80s now. And he, he was the guy that basically took over. You know, if you have a second father, that that, that was the second father. He... Uh, he was another one that made sure, you know, I was in school every day because I didn't have anybody pushing me at home to go to school. And then he made me take enough courses where I could qualify to go to college and, you know, had had somebody, and I'm sure he paid for it, uh, tutor me for, you know, the college boards and things like that. And, you know, I never forgot that because I don't know what I would have done. You know, the Vietnam War was going on pretty hot by the time I got out of um, high school and things like that. And so... I'm sure I would have been like my brother, just enlisted, and you know whatever happened happened. So, I was lucky. I, I ran into really good people, and uh, that that's probably his 
and my uh, freshman coaches, uh, their their models as coaches, I didn't know it at the time, but that probably influenced me in wanting to be a coach. Mm. And basketball and baseball sound like the two things that you were most passionate about growing up. Was there anything else that you enjoyed doing or you liked doing, uh, hobbies or anything that you found interesting? No, I think um, reading was good. Back then, you had to read a lot more to find out what was going on. There was you know, three major papers where I grew up. And so you'd follow mostly sports, but you kept up with current events. And I I like to read. And once again, that that was a very isolated thing. You could do that on your own. You didn't need anyone else around. And, you know, it's just the way you grew up. Uh, I grew up kind of, you know, by myself after ninth grade. So, but that was okay because, you know, I was doing what I wanted to do. And so if I were to uh, encapsulate all of that, it somewhat introverted, not, not very outgoing or social, but focused on, on the ball sport at both ball sports and sort of keep your head down and, and just play ball. Yeah, it was funny. Um, I, I guess the, the basketball court especially allowed you to express yourself. Um, and like I said, everybody starts even in, in a basketball game, uh, in a competition like that. And so I really liked that. And I wasn't afraid to express myself on the basketball court. Um, you know, and I had a lot of confidence that, that I could I could play by the time I got to be a sophomore in high school. And I don't know where that came from other than my coaches because I never was confident in everything else because not, nothing had worked out really well, you know, family-wise or, you know, and academically. I worked really hard just to be an average student. At least I thought I worked hard <laughs> to be an average student. And But when it came to walking on a basketball court, that, that was – that that was fun for me. That that was the time I could stand out, you know. And I think that that there's always a, a motivation, you know. You you look at the players around. There's there's always a reason why they got to where they got to or didn't get to where they got to. So, um, and I think I, I was just motivated by the you know that was my time. You know, you couldn't. I don't care, you know, what kind of house you guys lived in or you know what kind of car you had. Walked on the basketball court. You know, I, I I could stand out on a basketball court. So potentially wanting to stand out and compete, it sounds like there's a competitive streak. I can almost hear it as soon as you as soon as you start talking about stepping onto the court. There's a competitive instinct or spirit that comes out of you. Well, I think any any time something's important to you, you you protect it. And I felt that way about basketball. I I I, I had this thing, this basketball thing that uh, I wanted to be good at, and so I looked at. You know, your competition is somebody trying to take that away from you. And I, I think sometimes that that's a great motivator just to understand that your opposition is trying to do what you do, trying to do it better than you. And, you know, as, as you grow up at all, you know, it starts at a wide base and then you gradually play freshman ball, high school ball, college ball. It just keeps narrowing down who plays. And so you have to be competitive. Uh, every great player I've ever known, and I certainly wasn't a great player, but every great player I knew had that competitive thing in them. You, you just you couldn't take it away from them. Uh, they might lose, but they, they'd never admit you were better than they were. As I'm listening to your story, I'm struck by a couple of things. One, growing up in the Philly area. Uh, two, divorce, ninth grade. Three, a lack of money where you knew others that had. And I'm wondering if you think that without those uh, events or experiences, do you think you'd still be who you became? And and we'll talk more about your your coaching legacy. But do you think how do you think those impacted who you who you later became? 
I think it had a great deal to do with it. Um, if I was in a different position, I'm sure I, other things would have appealed to me that maybe I could have been as successful or, or successful in those things. But, um, you know, I, I had the basketball thing. So, um, you know, that that's the way that was. But there would have been other things out there. I look at kids today, you know, they, a lot of kids have a lot more options than I did growing up. And so for them to just focus on, say, basketball, for instance, it's very difficult to do because they're, they're pulled. Uh, I wasn't pulled, you know, I wasn't in the, I wasn't one of the cool kids, you know, in, in high school. I, I was just a basketball player. And that was good, you know, looking back. I mean, that was good. We all wish we could have been the most popular kid in the class and things like that. But, you know, that that what that wasn't me. And where where I was uh, probably at ease the most was playing basketball. And so I narrowed your focus and University of Maryland becomes an opportunity to go play basketball there. Is that is that the draw? What were your options coming out of high school and how do you end up at, at Maryland? I visited um, Clemson, Pittsburgh, Providence, and Maryland. Um, the Big Five didn't really recruit me heavily and that really hurt because he grew up a kid in South Jersey, you know, 25 minutes from the Palestra. That, that, the Palestra back then, this is before you know, anything, you know, in terms of the Big East or, or leagues like that. And if you could play in the Big Five in Philadelphia, where I grew up, that that was the ultimate. And I, I was really disappointed. Uh, recruiting was different back then. Um, my coach had never really had another player before, and he didn't know the process of getting in touch. You had to get in touch with college coaches back then, on, unless you were Will Chamberlain or, or somebody like that. So, um but, you know, I, I was fortunate to go to Maryland because uh, it, it was – I played for a coach who uh, wasn't a warm, fuzzy person or anything like that. But if you were going to be a coach, he was a great fundamental teacher. And obviously I didn't know that coming out of high school or, you know, how that was going to work. But it, it, it did work out in terms of what I did after college. And so after college, you decide that you want to coach or when does the, you said earlier that your high school coaches in some ways uh, inspired you to yeah. go into coaching, but when did the idea of becoming a coach become a reality for you? Well, uh, back when I went to school, uh, you couldn't play varsity as a freshman. So you, you played on a freshman team and it was a big deal. You, you had, you know, five or six guys on scholarship and you, you'd play like Virginia, West Virginia, Navy, uh, George Washington, the teams in a local area in the Maryland area. And I really enjoyed that. And I, ha I had some success. I, I was, you know, a good player on the freshman team. So the natural thing then, okay, you play on varsity your sophomore year. And um, I really worked hard that summer. I think I played every day that summer. I uh, did something. We didn't know how, how to practice, how, how to work. But just being on the court, I think you get better if, if, if you're there every day. So that's what I try to do. And I was fortunate enough to start my sophomore year by playing against guys in the ACC back then. Unfortunately, Duke and Carolina were, were still really good back then. And uh, I played against a guy named Billy Cunningham, who I became friends with. He's one of the top 50 all-time NBA players. And he played for Carolina. And I remember a game about halfway through my sophomore year, I was guarding a guy in the corner, and Billy Cunningham had the ball at the top of the circle. And he drove down the lane, and... My coach was a big defensive coach, and so I knew how to help, you know, to get away from your man, to help guard the guy with the ball. So I got in great position to take a charge on Billy Cunningham, and he came down the lane and I had him. He had to go through me, and the next thing I saw was this Converse shoe going over my shoulder, 
And then I realized that this might be it. You know, college might be as far as it goes. And really, I started to look at, at the games differently then. I started to look at it from coaching because there was Dean Smith had come into the ACC, um, a great coach at Duke. Vic Bubis was there. Uh, legendary Frank McGuire uh, was in South Carolina, who was in the ACC back then. So, and there were other really good coaches. Um, and so you, you, you gradually, I don't know if it was a conscious effort, but you pick their brains a little bit. You know, you look at how they played, um, how you'd like to coach if, if you were coaching, you know, that type of thing. And so I had probably, by the time I was a junior, committed to the fact that I'd like to give the coaching thing a try, but just a try. You know, I, I didn't look at it as a career thing. I, I, I wanted to give it a shot. And you mentioned as a player, you just would spend time on the court and, and just practice and play. Where did that come from for you that that's where you would spend your time? It's the most comfortable place I could be. Uh, you didn't need any money, number one. Uh, and number two, I just loved to play. I mean, it, it, it was a great way to spend the summers um, doing that. Back back then, every, every kid had a summer job. Uh, nobody has a summer job now that plays major college basketball. But uh, then you did. You tried to save enough money so you'd have money during the school year even though you had a scholarship that didn't put any money in your pocket. So you needed some money, and I made enough to get by, and um, it was a great way. You, you, you go to work, get out of work, go to the courts, call them the courts, you know, and, and that's where you had your fun. As a player, what did you love? What did you love about the game? I, I loved um, the idea that, um, you know, for, you, you play to win, first of all. It, it, there, there was no political correctness on a basketball court. If you could stomp somebody by 50, you beat them by 50. And I got stomped as well as stomped other people. And that, that was, I think that's one of the things that appealed to me that, you know, there, there, no, nobody said I'm sorry or, or whatever. You, you just competed and you find out. And, and there was no politics. There, there was no favoritism given to that player because he was so-and-so or whatever. If you beat them, you could, you know, you, you beat them, and if they could beat you, fine, you know. But you, the thing you learned with that is there's always you can come back, you know. There's another day, there's another game to play, and uh, I think that helps a lot of kids after they're done playing basketball get that attitude where, you know, work might not go well today, but tomorrow you can come back and be the best worker there is at what you do, and uh, you you try to sell that to your players once you got into coaching. But I, I really believed in that, and. You know, it, it, it made my life better because it, it put into me that um, that work ethic that you need to be successful. And I'm not just talking about sports, but, you know, you have to you have to have something in you that separates you from other people that want to do the same thing that you do. And so coaching after college, walk us through how that came to be. And you said you weren't really thinking of it as a career, but it was something of interest. Wow. Uh, I remember interviewing with IBM. I was a business major, graduated from business school. Um, I think they liked me because I was co-captain my senior year. They were looking for leadership, you know, back then. Uh, didn't didn't really feel comfortable there. Uh, so I don't know what I was going to do. I, I knew what probably was going to happen. This is 68 now. Um, the draft was hot and heavy. They were taking uh, 50,000 men a month. And you were going to Vietnam, basically, uh, if you were drafted. I had my physical up in Baltimore uh, before we got out our senior year. I'll never forget that. Um, they, were, they were just taking everybody out of school so they could go quickly once you graduated. But I, I got a job uh, through uh, a friend of mine that I played basketball with. His father taught at a high school in South Jersey in Camden. 
New Jersey, Woodrow Wilson High School, and they needed a JV basketball coach. And they asked me if I'd be interested. And sure, you know, uh, it's coaching. But I told them, I said, look, I'm, I'm probably going to get drafted. So there, there's, you know, I might not be able to do it. Back then, if you taught in Camden, New Jersey, you got, uh, they called it an urban uh, deferment because they couldn't get teachers to go to Camden to teach. But I was 22, 23, you know, and, and uh, they had good basketball teams, and I was going to be the JV coach. I mean, here I am, the head JV coach at age 23, which I thought was pretty cool. And so it was a great opportunity for me. You know, I had great kids, and, you know, that probably cemented the idea that, I wanted to coach. What was it like to go from player to coach? Can you remember what that transition was like for you? Yeah, I played a lot in practice. <laughs> yeah, you know, and and, and you, you're always filling in. If you didn't have 10 guys that day for practice, you would do it. But the, the big thing was um, I saw the, the guys I had in Woodrow Wilson and Camden, they, they didn't have a lot of money. They They were, you know, sometimes they didn't come from great homes, things like that. And so it gave you a chance to give back a little bit to your your high school coach or the people that, you know, made sure that you got to where you were supposed to get to. And, you know, I I, I appreciated what they did. So, you know, you, you give back a little bit while you're coaching, and that's not just the basketball part, but make sure back then you, you were labeled either college prep or non-college prep. There was no in-between. And most of the black kids, the, the school was changing at the time, and most of the black kids that played basketball, they just put them in non-college prep. You know, it didn't matter if they were smart or anything. They just said, you're going in that. And so I took a couple of them down to the guidance office and tried to explain uh, to these old people that used to be teachers that were now in guidance that these kids could get it done uh, academically. And, of course, then you, you walk out of the office after they made the switch and you tell those guys, they said, hey, you guys got to get it done. You know, you have to do it now. And it was good because it put pressure on them uh, academically. And, you know, I, two years later, the, that first team I had, all five guys got scholarships to college. And they were good enough basketball players to go, but they wouldn't have gone where they were academically uh, when I when I came in there. It's pretty cool if you go back and listen to your story and you've got a freshman coach who really pulls you aside, says, hey, you can go somewhere. Uh, you know, also you said something about him getting you a tutor and helping you out. Um, and then you're able to do the same for this group of guys. So you're coaching in high school. When does the college um, coaching opportunity start to come up? Well, it was funny. I, I really thought that um, I had found my niche. Um, college or high school basketball was big where, where I grew up. Uh, you'd get thousands of people, a couple thousand, three thousand at a game for a big game, things like that. And um, I was doing what I wanted to do. I, I don't, I don't, doesn't matter where you coach. If you're coaching, you're coaching. And, you know, you see it with a lot of high school coaches that given the opportunity, they'd be good college coaches. They just never wanted to or never got that opportunity. So I was coaching my third year at Woodrow Wilson, and the only person I knew really well uh, in college basketball who was coaching at the time was a guy named Tom Davis, who was uh, getting his doctorate my senior year at Maryland. And he used to hang around the gym, and I finally walked up to him and said, hey, you know, wh what's your deal? And he said, well, he was a high school coach in Wisconsin for like six years, wanted to get into college coaching, but at the same time, had his master's, wanted to get his doctorate. So he came, Maryland gave him a good deal to get his doctorate. And he got into coaching uh, the following year. 
uh, over at American U. He he was uh, an assistant coach there with Tom Young. They had Kermit Washington. That was their big player, and they won a lot of games. And so Tom Davis got the Lafayette coaching job uh, in Pennsylvania, small school, really good school. And he called me after that. Uh, he got the job, and he said, "I you, you ever think about coaching in college?" I said. Not really. I, I said, it looks like fun, you know, and you're coaching better players, obviously, in college. But, you know, I'm really happy here uh, coaching high school. He said, well, who else do you know that's a college basketball coach? I said, nobody. You know, I wasn't in the in-group. with. Back then it was five-star, Howard Garfunkel, all that. I wasn't one of those guys. And so he said, well, think about it. I thought about it, and I turned him down because there was a, another part of that you had to be the head soccer coach at Lafayette. <laughs> I, they, I, they had never had a full-time assistant basketball coach. The soccer coach left. So financially, budget-wise, Lafayette couldn't pay two positions. They could pay one. So if I wanted the assistant basketball coaching, then I had to be the head men's soccer coach at Lafayette. And I immediately turned it down. You know? And finally, Tom drove to my house, and he said, you, you're, you know, if you ever want to coach, you're stupid. You, know, you, you, you have to take advantage of the opportunity. And it's like a lot of things. You don't want to do what you're uncomfortable with. And I learned a lot from this that if I hadn't done that, I would have never been a college coach. There's, there's no chance. And so I did something I didn't like to do to get to a point where I could do what I wanted to do. And, you know, that was good for me because I used that with the players all along, you know, about sacrificing, you know, that, that type of thing. And you have to do it. So I became the head soccer coach and assistant basketball coach. And, you know, the athletic director said, look, just do it for a year, and then we'll get somebody to, you know, take the soccer. Six years later, I'm still the head soccer coach and assistant basketball coach. Okay, at wait. Lafayette. So, so did you play soccer at all growing up? No, I had no uh, background whatsoever. Tom knew the soccer coach at American U. He sent me down, and we talked for about three hours at American U. He gave me two books to read, and two weeks later, we started practice at uh, – Lafayette. And what so, was that like for you those six years that, of coaching that, soccer? Well, the first day was the scariest day I ever had in coaching. I mean, I've gone in against some pretty good teams and thinking I might get my butt kicked and things like that. But it was never as tough as walking out of there because I was 25 and you have seniors that are 22, 23. And I, so I leveled with them. I said, look, I think I can coach, but you know, I'm not a technical guy with soccer. I don't know the game that well. And all those guys at Lafayette back then, there was nobody on scholarship. They all played because they wanted to play. So that was no problem for them as long as it didn't bother them. You know, they, they, they were fine. And I was the backup goalie in practice, and they tried to kill me a couple of times. <laughs> but that was fun. Um, and we were okay. You know, we, we could play. Uh, we played. We beat Columbia, Princeton, um, teams like that at, that at that level, kind of the Ivy League level in soccer. And and back then, those kids, they, they had nothing. You know, you talk about bad equipment, bad shoes, you know, because, you know, Lafayette wasn't going to spend any money on soccer, you know, back then. So um, I, I really admire them. Plus, for six years, it kept me make dis making decisions as a head coach. You know, it doesn't matter what the sport is. You make decisions, who plays, who doesn't play, uh, you know, how can you get better, you know, all those things you still do. And, you know, I look back, that, that was a great opportunity for me that I didn't think it was at the time, but it certainly was. What's your biggest takeaway? So you talk decision-making, learning how to still get a team to function. Like what, what's the biggest takeaway in coaching a sport that maybe you're not quite as competent, you're not competent on when it comes to the X's and O's, but you still have to lead young men? Well, you listen. Um, and 
I had a language professor there. His name was Rado Privic. He was from the old Yugoslavia. And he had a little bit of a soccer background, and he, he, he got no money. He just came out as a volunteer, and um, he knew the game. And I learned a lot from him, and, you know, that, that kept me going. Plus, the players were good. You know, some of them were really good soccer players, and, you know, you, they had ideas on the game and things like that. And, you know, you, you're smart enough to listen. Um, I always listened to people. I didn't always do what they said to do, but I'll, I would always listen. And you learn. You said earlier that there's great coaches at every level. Uh, what makes a great coach? I think uh, you have to love what you do, number one, because hours don't mean anything in coaching. If you have to work 14 hours, you work 14 hours. I mean, it's not, um, you know, it's not something you, you can look at as nine to five or whatever. And then you like working with who you're working with. I mean, I think about it for 44 years, I got to work with people 18 to 22 years old. And it's really cool because you see them change. You know, the guy that's 18 is a certain way. And by the time they're 22, you hope, you know, they've developed well enough to be successful when they get out of uh, college or whatever. And, you know, and you have, you, you, you have your ups and downs. You have kids that, you, you know, you really believed in that really let you down. You know, they never finished uh, school, whatever, and things like that. But at the same time, um, you were doing something you love to do. And I, I think... For anybody to be successful or to, to max out what you're trying to do, you have to like it. You, you, can't, you can't do something, you know, I, I, you know and it, at my age now, I feel sorry for some of the guys I went to high school with. They hated their job for 40 years. They did it because they were making good money. They had to provide for their family. You know, I understand all that, but they never really enjoyed getting up and going to work. There's also something special that you hit on in coaching 18 to 22 year olds. Uh, I've been fortunate to work with high school kids, college kids and pro athletes. And I've always said that 18 to 22 year old, when I work with them and and coach them, uh, you know, the high school kids often lack self-awareness. So they're not always able and they're just used to just doing what their parents say. Um, And then in college now they have a little space and a little autonomy and freedom as far as how they decide to get to class, if they decide to go to class, what do they decide to do at night? There's just a self-awareness that occurs. And then when pros, sometimes they're challenging to work with because what got them there, they believe that they just should keep on that course. And um, I have found it fascinating. I've done uh, interviews at the Combine for both Major League Soccer and the NBA where I interview players. And Um, it's fascinating when you interview the 18 year old kid who's one and done compared to the 22 year old senior. And look, there have been some 18 year olds that blow me away and some 22 year olds that don't, but I would generalize it and say that when I've interviewed those 22 year olds, there is a self-awareness to them. There is a presence to them and an understanding as far as how they might want to operate in their career and sometimes that doesn't exist for that 18-year-old. Um, so I'm curious to hear your experience in working with that age group and what that was like for you. Yeah, I think that was uh, part of the uh, attraction as you as you you know started getting into it more and more, uh, where you recruited kids with the idea that um, you know were they talented enough to play in the ACC or the Big Ten or, or whatever. So they had to have a certain level of talent. But then after that, you started looking at you know, what type of guy is this? Will he be willing to work hard? Because 
the way I coached, we, we worked hard. We all worked hard, the coaches, the players, and we, we, we really tried to get better every day in practice. There was no easy days, and some guys don't want that. You know, They think they're good enough where they don't have to work that hard in practice. They'll turn it on for you in the games and things like that. So you, you try to find those people, and then when you got them, it was your job to look at each individual player and try to figure out, okay, how can you get this guy better? Okay, th- this guy likes to do this. This guy doesn't like this. And uh, a lot of times um, when you had a good team, you, you had different people on your team. It, it, you didn't want everybody basically the same. And, you know, some guys were very vocal. Some guys never said anything, but they were killers. You know, they, they were great players without saying much. And um, I, I just enjoyed trying to put that together every season because even though you might have all the guys back for next season, because they're a year older, that, that's a different team. They have different values, different, you know, maybe girlfriends, things like that to come into play. And yet you have to go into each year knowing that you're going to have to work hard to, to have a good team because it's not going to be the same as last year. And then you, you really get satisfaction watching guys grow. And I don't mean just age-wise or get stronger, things like that, but just mentally where they accept certain things, they have a different outlook, and it's really a positive thing. And I think that keeps you going. And, you know, the other thing is when you've coached for a while and guys come back 10 years later and they say, hey, thanks, you know, I, I appreciate it. You know, and it's not all – it's a bumpy road sometimes. They don't like you all the time. Uh, but that's okay, you know, as long as I feel like they're really progressing and really developing. Uh, you know, it's not written down that they have to like you when you coach. I think a lot of people want to be well-liked. And I, oh, think, yeah. I think that's a big piece. There was a study done based on home advantage and found that referee bias was because humans instinctively want to be well-liked. And when you're at the Xfinity Center and you've got all these people yelling at you, there is a subconscious deal that goes on where people want to be, the refs want to be well-liked and they might make a call here and a call there. And so I'm curious, how were you able to put the kid first in the sense that you knew that I don't, maybe they won't like me now, but it might be what they need. Uh, how, how are you able to do that? Well, you, you had to keep in mind that your job was to win. Uh, once you get to a major college level, if you don't win, you're gone, you know, in a few years. Uh, so that, that was always there. But in doing so and trying to win at the same time, you, you wanted to, obviously each player to play at his max, you know, as good as he can play. So part of that was getting to know the player, getting uh, to where he trusts you. Because um, all these guys you recruit now, they come in thinking they're going to play in the NBA. Less than 1% of all basketball players ever play in the NBA, you know, given Division One, Two, Three, Europe. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really hard now. And so you have to convince them that th- you're going to look the best if we win. In other words, individually – you look better on a winning team than you do on a losing team. Uh, and most players will buy into that. Uh, everybody wants to score 20 points a game like they did in high school, but it's not going to happen at the college level. Uh, and you see some teams that are really talented that are out of control. Each guy's looking for his. And if you play like that, you lose against good teams. And I, th- I think that's the one thing you try to sell. And once again, that goes back to family. That, that goes back to the idea of sacrificing for each other. And there's so many things you learn from being part of a team sport 
that really help you later on in life because everybody wants to be the leading scorer, including me when I played. But I realized that if I shot a lot, we wouldn't be any good because I wasn't a good shooter. And the coach didn't really tell me that directly, but subtly you, you'd get the, you get the message like, you're not going to play anymore if you take another shot like that. That's, that, that was the message that you have to give sometimes. And, you know, guys want to play. You know, the, the, you, you control playing time. That's your big uh, stick when, when you're coaching. Um, and, but along with that, you have to make sure the players feel, and they might not admit it, but they feel that you gave them an opportunity. In other words, you didn't screw up a guy because you like this guy as a person better than that guy. You know, the guy you didn't like might be one of your best players. And you had to keep that in mind. I'm just curious. I, I find it fascinating. And I didn't know that you coached soccer for six years. And so you, you are coaching there. And the AD is saying, oh, just do it for a year. And we'll find a, uh, someone else to do the job. So you didn't have to win at that particular job. They just wanted you to be a placeholder and, and to not hopefully do anything bad and get get into trouble, right? They just wanted you to be yeah. there. Did you approach coaching them the same way or was it different? No, I, I um, that, that was true. I, I could have stayed there for the rest of my life as a soccer coach. But at the same time, you have pride in what you do. And um, I looked at the players. They were working as hard as any basketball team I ever had. So I wasn't going to shortchange those guys just because I had a sense of security as a soccer coach because the other thing was that's not what I wanted to be a soccer coach. I didn't want to be known. I wanted to be known as a great basketball coach. And so if that, while I was trying to get to there, uh, I wasn't going to hurt those kids who made my life a lot easier by working hard, um, knowing that I didn't know a lot about soccer, but yet at the same time, not making fun of it uh, and acting like a good team acts. And those guys were tremendous. Yeah, because we all have options when we face some something uncomfortable, right? We can, there, there are probably people that would have been in that situation and just, you know. Yeah, just throw the balls it. out. No, yeah. It's easy to throw the balls out in the field. Uh, you, you could do that because players want to play, but, you know, you, you have to have some discipline. You do drills, you do things like that, that, you know, and you, you have to push. And those players accepted that knowing that I didn't know a lot about soccer. So what I'm trying to understand is, so at that point, it's not, you, you said, you know, you have to win or else they'll find somebody else in basketball. Right. But in soccer, you didn't have to win. Um, so what is it about winning that is so motivating to you and, and such a piece of your, your spirit? I don't know. I, I guess I grew up, um, I never remember playing a game, whether it's a pickup game in the summertime in basketball where, I didn't try to win. And I, I used to get upset with some guys that didn't seem to care as much as I did. Well, maybe, maybe I was different. You know, maybe I cared too much or maybe I cared more than the average player. But I think that separates you a lot of times in high school is guys get other interests, as we said. You know, they cars, girls, whatever, you know, and never did that. And basketball was always my focus. And, you know, I guess that carried over when I became a coach and like I said, I looked at coaching soccer as I'm coaching, you know, and so I had, I had pride in the job. In other words, I didn't want anybody to say, hey, that guy's really doing nothing. He just throws the balls out and they, they run up and down the field every day at practice. I, I didn't want that. I didn't want to get embarrassed in games where we played, 
you know, some pretty good schools and, and pretty good coaches in soccer. And so that, that, that kept you motivated. Uh, that was my motivation. Winning is, is the ultimate. Um, and as you, as you get into coaching and you're in a lot, uh, unfortunately, the losses become lower than the wins get higher. You know, it's just one of those things that happen. You, you, after a while, you win a game and you, and you go, okay, who do we play next? Where you lose a game, that stays with you probably until you walk on the practice floor, you know, getting ready for the next game. How, how would you manage that? How would you handle that? Not well. Um, I hated to lose. Um, losing was um, – and you, you can't – well, for, for me, if I ever started not to hate losing, that would have been a good time to, to stop because great motivator. You know, uh, you know you, you're coaching the ACC back in, you know, the, the late 90s or whatever. Uh, you might play Duke on a Saturday night and – uh, a team like NC State that didn't have the aura that Duke did, but NC State was really good. So, you 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 had to be tough enough to handle, you know, some adversity, in not let it affect the way you prepared for your next game. And uh, that wasn't always easy, you know, because you had to get the player. If I, if I walked in and I couldn't get myself up for practice, how could the players be up for practice? I always looked at it that way, and so. You know, I, I, w- I would just – that that was one of the strengths I had. I, I could get, you know, myself convinced that, okay, we lost that game, but we're going to win this next game. And it's just like walking into the locker room before a game. I never walked into a locker room anywhere where I didn't think I was going to win the game because I have to get the players to believe that I believe we can win and then we have a chance. Did you have any routines that you would use as a player before the game to get yourself into that mind space? And then as a coach, specifically what you're talking about now for practice, was there anything that you would do to make sure that you, you needed to be where you needed to be? Yeah, I thought I, um, I focused a lot um, by myself. In other words, I wasn't big on meetings with my assistant coaches or whatever. Um, as a player, it was easy to get ready, especially as you got along with your career. You, you get to be a junior in college. You knew that you had X number of games left, and each game was really a big deal, you know, because you had put all this time in since you were eight, nine years old, and you wanted to be successful and you, you wanted to win. But when you get into coaching, you know, you, you're, you know, like I was in Maryland for 22 years, so guys are there for four years and, and at the most. And some guys nowadays, they're not there more than a year. So you have to convince those guys that we can't waste any time. We, we have to be good every day in practice. Um, the old story, when the referee throws up the ball to start the game in the center jump, everybody wants to win equally as much, and it's usually the team that worked the hardest in preparation that wins those games against equal talent. And you, you really sell that, and then when you get good kids, you get good, good players – they believe you, you know, and you might have to get on them a little bit to start practice, but as practice goes on, you can see it. You, you can see it gradually. You know, they get away from the last game and get really motivated to understand what we have to do to be successful in the next game. And, you know, when you have great practices, that's when good teams get better during the year. You, want to get, you don't want to be in January what you were in November. You, you want to be better. And so the, the only way you do that is to practice hard. You, you don't get better just from the games. You get better from practice because you practice a lot more than, you know, the number of games you play. So walk us through preparation for practice. What would that look like for you? Well, I, I, I would have, uh, the night before, I would have lo- watched a lot of tape on um, our team and the team we were going to play and uh, 
figure out what we did wrong in the last game or did right in the last game and really emphasize that. But at the same time, um, trying to figure out which player is going to feel like practicing, which player is probably down a little bit. And a lot of things went before practice actually started. You make calls, get guys to come over before practice, just one-on-one where they're relaxed, talk, and everything okay? You're good now? Yeah, we're good. Let's go. You know, And, and you could tell that um, a player was ready. And so most of the time at the level I was fortunate enough to coach at, once they started to play against each other, it, it gets competitive. But there's very few guys that let somebody – just walk all over them, you know, because they don't feel like practicing that day. So if you have 10 good players, then you're, you're when you go five on five in practice, that's as intense as a lot of games if you have good players. And culture, identity, values, if you were to label what that looked like while you were coaching, specifically at Maryland, I know we're, we're skipping over a, a bunch of years, uh, Boston College, Ohio State, um, but when you had that, that you, 22 years at, at Maryland, what were the values that you wanted your kids to have? Well, I, I wanted them to respect the game. In other words, you, you live your life as a college basketball player. You don't do things to hurt the team. You don't do things to hurt yourself. And that's easy to say, and there's a lot of temptations, obviously, on a college campus for any college student. And these guys get so much attention they look so different than everybody else because they're bigger than everybody else. Hey, one of my players, six six, walks across campus. He's he's bigger than anybody that walks across campus. So everybody knows who they are. The television now, you know, you just you you have that obligation. And we talked about it a lot about if you do something, that's all of us. If you do something good, that really helps us all. If you do something bad, that really hurts the team. And especially following the Len Bias situation where. A lot of those guys that played with Lynn Bias, and I know most of them by now, they were really good kids. They were really worked hard. And yet Maryland was the drug capital of the world because Lynn Bias died. Uh, you don't want to go to Maryland. When, when I recruited the first three years I was there, you'd walk into a home and you see newspaper clippings from the Washington Post about the post-bias era, you know, things like that. And, you know, of course, every every June there would be a special on ESPN about the death of Lynn Bias. And, so you dealt with that, you know, and, and you, you told your players, this is what happens, you know, that, that this is how it works, and this is our job now. I had guys from the local area that came to the University of Maryland to prove that Len Bias was this great person, that they, they were, they were going to work hard because Len didn't get the chance to play in the NBA, that type of thing. And it was, it, it was great to see the, these kids that, you know, grew up around that, that had to deal with that. Uh, as Maryland basketball players, but they were willing to do that, and that meant a lot to me. You know what's amazing about Len Bias? So that happened, I think, right before I was born. So it didn't, I don't remember it happening, right. but growing up in this area, it had an impact on me because it was just a story about somebody doing something and dying. And it, it stuck with me personally uh, as a, a lesson to say, okay, I'm just, I'm not going to do that um, because that could kill me. And it's interesting because I don't remember it being told to me or like yeah. my parents saying, oh, this happened to him. It could happen to you. But for some reason, it instilled a little fear in me to not do something that could potentially be very harmful. I'll tell you what's amazing. If, if you look at the area, say the last 50 years and, you know, events that have happened, you know, you look at JFK, uh, you look at Watergate, 
You look at Len Bias. I mean, it's, it's at that level, and it affected the university incredibly. I remember getting the job that we're, where nobody had any faith in the basketball program. They thought that, uh, you know, it really had hurt the school's image academically. Somehow they associated Bias dying with the academic level at the school. Um, parents wouldn't send their kids there because they thought they'd get into dr- drug problems if they went there. So you had to deal with all that. And, you know, the, the, so what happens with that, the players that you wind up getting, they're pretty tough kids. You know, they're, they're you know, that, that first recruiting class that we got sanctions from what had happened with the previous coach. Um, so once we got off and no television, no NCAA tournament, the first three guys that came as a freshman class were Johnny Rhodes from Dunbar High School in D.C., X-Ray Hip from Prince George's County, and Dwayne Simpkins, who played at DeMatha. And those three guys were willing to come, given they, they knew a lot about that, you know, because they had grown up with Bias as their hero. And yet they still came. And then the next year, because of those three guys, we were able to get Joe Smith and Keith Booth. And that team went from, when those first three guys were freshmen, their sophomore year, we went from winning three games the year before in the ACC to going to the Sweet 16. And you don't do that unless you have really good people in addition to talented basketball players. And talent and and people is kind of a hallmark of your legacy because as people look at those teams, and I might be wrong about this, but I think Keith Booth was actually recruited as a higher stud than Joe Smith, who ended up being the first pick of the NBA draft. And so if you look at the teams that you had, the the team that you won with um, and – you went to back-to-back Final Fours with a lot of guys that weren't quote-unquote top 100 guys. When you were recruiting kids, and you're talking about X-Ray Hip, Johnny Rose, Dwayne Simpkins, they had to take a little bit of a chance on, on Maryland and, and had, you mentioned the word pride earlier, maybe some pride for what that stood for. What were the qualities that you were specifically looking for in the human? Uh, because a lot of your teams, most people from the outside would say they – they sort of outperformed their potential. Although the team you won with had plenty of guys who went on oh, yeah. to have good NBA careers too. So I used to get a kick out of that. We had um, we had the third most players in my 22 years go to the NBA in the ACC. Duke and Carolina were one and two, but Duke and Carolina were probably one and two nationally. Right. So we, I used to get a kick, at, you know, about not recruiting. Well, you, you know, they they. I, I think I'm a good coach, but I'm not a miracle worker. I mean, those guys are pretty good coming in. And maybe, like you said, they weren't on somebody's list. But coaches now pay money to get names of players on lists. So that that never carried away. And I was just a laugh. I, we had a backup on, who was a good player on the national championship team. He was a uh, junior college player named Ryan Randall. I'll never forget the locker room after we beat uh, Indiana to win it. Reporter comes up to it. Wow, Ryan, you know – Amazing. You, you won the national championship without any McDonald's All-Americans. And Ryan goes, now nah, we were Burger King All-Americans. <laughs> and I, I used that line when I spoke during the summer. But, uh, but that's how they felt. Uh, and by the time, you know, because you're not as highly rated as somebody as a freshman, that doesn't mean you can't be a better player by the time you're a junior than that player. Or I'm a junior now. Here comes this hotshot freshman. I'm going to kick his butt because I know how to play. I played college ball for three years. And People only look at, you know, what they hear, McDonald's All-Americans, what they see on television, you know, especially now with the Internet and everything like that. Well, 
hey, I can, I can get somebody to say I, w- I was a better coach than John Wooden. <laughs> well, I wasn't a better coach than John Wooden, but I can get somebody to say that. And, you know, there's people out there that believe that. What were the qualities that those kids had? If you were to sum it up, and they're, look, they're all different, but what were you looking for? And, and you said something earlier, we would go 10, we'd have 10 guys in there, five on five, and they'd oh, yeah. be competing. So w- when you think about those guys that you just named on that first team or the guys that I'm thinking of, Steve Blake, Juan Dixon, Mouton, Baxter, uh, wh- what made those guys sort of them? Well, e- each guy individually wanted to win. Um, they had this uh, amazing thing about the, the shooting contest after practice that they did on their own was just incredible to watch sometimes. They'd argue about, you know, a guy being over the line or whatever, and it was just because they wanted to win, and that that was every day in practice. That that never changed. And then the other thing was that they honestly cared. You, you know, you hear it a lot, but they honestly cared about each other. If a guy was going bad, Somebody would talk to him. It was, and that's much better that pure um, deal than some coach saying, "Hey, you got to do this, got to do that." And once you had the right number of guys that were good guys, you could gradually increase that because when you brought in a recruit, you'd put them with the players for a while, and they'd come back and say, "Coach, we want this guy," or "Coach, this guy's an idiot. We don't want him around." And you get to, you know, and when you have really good guys, they're not worried about that guy being a good player and taking minutes away from him because they're very com- uh, confident of their own ability. They're just worried about that guy coming in and making the team worse than it was. And you see that, you know, you, I have eight or nine really good players in the team. There's this guy, he's 6'8", he can really jump, he can really play, but he's a complete idiot. Nobody likes him. You know, his teammates, you can tell in high school, don't like him. Uh, but his talent can make us better. And you take that kid and that guy – influences the other eight guys and so we really were careful with that trying to bring in people that would not mess with what we had going you know there's something interesting having worked with college football and college basketball you know a basketball team might have 12 to 15 guys a football team has 105 guys and it's interesting when you think about how People can impact a team because in some senses, basketball, you only have to worry about 12 to 15 guys. But if you have two guys in that locker room that are not, quote unquote, bought in, it can really impact the team. And then on the other flip side of it in football, you know, it's you could have a defensive lineman that impacts the defensive lineman or a cornerback that impacts the secondary or an offensive lineman that impacts. So it still can impact the whole locker room, but it's in a more... Um, it's in a larger level. It's it's just interesting how those dynamics work. Yeah, and I, I you know, you, as a coach, well, for me, I can, I can only speak of me, but you go through that once where you're bringing a guy that's really talented, but you know you know he's a bad guy coming in, the season starts, and you're not any good, and, you know, you went through that. And I just shook my head. I said, never again, never again. And because you, you, you feel pressure as a coach to bring in that five-star recruit, you know, even though – he might not be a good guy, and um, and there, there's plenty of five-star recruits that are really good guys. Don't get me wrong, but you you have to be careful uh, with who you bring in because, as you said, it doesn't take much, and, and it's such a fine line of who's good, who's not good, what teams win close games, all all those things that win close games. You know, conditioning, uh, you know, mental toughness. Uh, because at the end of the game, the last two minutes of the game, a lot of times it's not who runs the best play. It's the guy that gets a loose ball. It's the guy that doesn't give up a second shot. You know, th- those type of things win games more than 
a guy sticking a you know a great shot or something like that. And when I grew up going to Coalfield House and, and watching your teams play, there are two things that I, I would love to hear your thoughts on. One, your teams played with an intensity and an energy to them. And I think Cole Fieldhouse also brought an intensity and an energy to it. Um, and then you brought an intensity and energy to the game as well. So I'm, I'm curious as to how you can capture that, how you can cultivate that. And the second question is, when I watched you coach, there was always an emphasis on teaching the bench. And I would watch you in the game and you were always, always talking to the guys on the bench. So I'm curious about how you cultivate intensity and then what, it, what you were trying to communicate to the guys on the bench. Well, um, intensity comes from practice. Uh, the idea that uh, I was never going to be down in practice. I was never going to walk into practice no matter what happened during the day and let that affect the way I went after practice. And, you know, we, we, we talked about it all the time in practice. You either went full speed or we we're going to walk through something. We would never go half speed. I always, I didn't know what half speed was. I don't know what that meant. And so gradually you get to the point where you expect that as a player. You expect, okay, here we go, and we're going as long as we can for as hard as we can. And that's conditioning in basketball. You know, you, you can run sprints. You can do all those things. But being able to play up and down, stop and starting, all those things, because you have to think. When you're running sprints, you don't have to think. You know, you just try to get it to the where you're supposed to run to in sprints. When you're playing basketball, you can be a little tired and out of breath, but you still have to make that pass. Or you still, if you're open, you still have to be tough enough to go up and make that jump shot. And uh, so you try to get that going in practice, and uh, then that carries over to the game because you can't just say, "Okay, it's game day. We're going to really play hard in this game tonight." That has to be done from the it used to be October 15th, the first day of practice right up until the game, we are, we are going hard every day, every day. Now here comes the game, and we don't have to change anything because we're, we're going to go hard. And then um, the other thing was um, – How you would communicate to the bench. Yeah, the, the, the bench game. was um, – a lot a lot of the time I, I was didn't want to yell at the referees more than I did and didn't want to yell at the players on the court, so I'd yell at the guys. But at the same time, I was trying to keep the players sharp because you see it all the time. Guy comes into the game. He doesn't know who he's supposed to guard. He wasn't listening to the assistant coaches. He's doing that. So they never knew when I was going to go crazy, you know, on, on the bench. And it, it was – I got criticized quite a bit for that. But at the same time, we usually knew what we were doing. And we would do a lot of different things. We were pressing a lot of the times. And so you got to know a little bit more defensively, you know, uh, uh, you know, how they're attacking the press. What are they trying to do? Because you can look really bad pressing, give up layups, you know, that type of thing. And so that that was all part of it, but it was part of the intensity. You know, we just some teams you you, you look at them they 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 they're they're pretty. You know, they're they're really nice the way they play and everything like that. We were never there. We were always blue collar. You know, we 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 just came after you. And, and Cole Fieldhouse for me to be able to coach in Cole Fieldhouse. And the greatest thing about Cole Fieldhouse is the last year there, 2002, we went undefeated at home, and you know, played great and won a national championship. And that building deserved that. You know, that that building was – that was the mecca of college basketball throughout the country. Two Final Fours, the Texas-Western-Kentucky game. Every great player in the ACC from Michael Jordan on down played there. You know, it was just such a historic building that, uh, you know, it was cool the way it went out. You know, like every player wishes they could have gone out like Cole Fieldhouse went out. The press – 
is something that's embedded in me and that you guys would have this intensity. And I, I had a conversation with JJ Reddick once I saw JJ Reddick and we started talking and I told him I'm from Maryland and he looked at me and, and I said, what? And he goes, I hate Maryland. It's good. And I looked at him, I go, we hated you too. And he said, that was the worst place that I that I played at, and I go, yeah, that's home advantage. That's what they wanted. Well, but but the, I think the you had this combination of a crowd, a blue collar team, like you said. You had a press. There was an identity and a culture and an intensity that when you walked into that gym, you felt. You saw the newspapers in the crowd. You heard a chant saying you suck. You there was. There was an intensity, and to be honest, I went to Syracuse, um, and so my freshman year was actually the year after you guys won, so the Syracuse yeah, won the next won. year. So for me, college basketball, to be a Maryland fan and then go to Syracuse, and by the way, their team was completely different than your team because they won with young kids. And Carmelo. I remember freshman year, these people in my year are saying, oh, we've got this kid Carmelo, we're going to win it all. I said, you don't win I with know. freshmen, you win with juniors and seniors. I came from Maryland, I know that. But I remember being in the Carrier Dome and saying, this isn't intense. Like I'm used to being in this small packed gym and now I'm in this big spacious dome and there was um, an intensity. So the press specifically, I was curious, is that something that you always did? And you look back at your days at, at Ohio state and at Boston college and Lafayette, was that something in AU you always did or did that come as a result of the personnel that you had? Well, I, we always did it. Um, I, I felt that goes back to playing. I, I felt that um, by the time I was a junior, Duke had started to press, and not many teams pressed. John wouldn't press, even with Kareem and people like that, Bill Walton. And I always thought it was a great way to play. And, you know, as I got into coaching, I thought I'd give it a shot. So we pressed when I was a high school coach, and American U, we had to press because we couldn't get that big player. We we were good at the 6'4", six, 6'5", six, uh, type size. But so we had to make up for it, and um, I just thought it's the ultimate weapon. If you're down 10 with, say, a minute 40 left in the game, you can't call a timeout and say, okay, we're going to press now. You have to know how to press because you have to be able to trap to steal the ball. Anybody can man press. That doesn't mean anything except it slows the game down uh, because it takes longer, and sometimes that's good to do uh, to do that. But when you trap and, and you have to know angles, you have to you have to know – uh, where to look for the next pass coming out of the trap, things like that. And uh, it's just a great weapon to have where – and all you got to do is win one game coming from behind with the press, and now the players buy into it. Players don't want to press. They don't want to play 94 feet of defense. They want to play like 25 feet of defense because it's harder. You know, it definitely is harder. But sometimes you, you have to do what you have to do. And I always had – we always had a press that we could go to if we needed it. And as I look back, I, I think about the first Final Four you went to, and I'm in the stands in Minneapolis with my family, and he's already looking at me. And what are you up at halftime against Duke? We're only up 12 then. We were up 22, uh, and I was really proud of the team because <clears throat> Duke obviously had been to Final Fours, you know, national championships by then. Maryland had never been to a Final Four. And so this was all new territory, and the media is completely different that week, and Everything involved, you know, and we come out flying. You know, we play great. Um, and then things changed right before halftime. You know, the game got called differently. I never complained about officials in my life after a game except for that game. And there were changes made in how referees advanced 
uh, after that in the NCAA tournament, which um, it's a shame that we had to go through what we did. Now, Duke was good. They won the national championship. They beat Arizona the next game. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, they had Battier and, you know, some really good players on that team. And so it wasn't like we were, you know, better than they were or something like that. But we could play with them. And uh, that was – that year we played Duke four times. We played them twice regular season, once in the uh, ACC tournament, and uh, then that game. And, you know, uh, the, the ACC tournament game came down to a last-second tip. Um, and the uh, game at uh, Coalfield House, we lost when Steve Blake fouled out of the game with about a minute and 20 left. And they, they scored the last 10 to put it into overtime. But then we went down and beat them on Battier's senior night at Cameron, which is uh, – that's when I knew Juan Dixon was a great player. He had like 33. We scored 94 against them down there. You look at that backcourt, and you've got Steve Blake and Juan Dixon. What, what made each of them special? Uh, you know, it's funny. They, they weren't I, – I wouldn't classify them as really good friends, but they really respected each other, uh, and they knew what each meant to the team. Like Juan knew Blake should have the ball, you know, against pressure or whatever. And Blake knew Juan should get the ball when he was open because Juan was a great scorer. He he wasn't the, the best outside shooter I ever had, but he was as good a scorer. He he really knew how to score. And uh he he, he was amazing. So both those guys together, I mean they, they one weighed hundred and seventy, the other guy probably weighed hundred and eighty. You know, that was it. And we you know, six two. But the toughness thing was there, and they wanted to win. You know, they, they really wanted to win. And what was that team like coming off that that loss? Is there any story that you knew that you guys were going to be good going into that next year? Is there any moment or uh, event that takes place where you're saying to yourself, okay, like, we're going to come back from this? Yeah, I was really concerned because Maryland, having never been to a Final Four, might be satisfied. You know, people get satisfied too early. And I thought, well, you, you know, these guys, I got a lot of them back. We lost Terrence Morris and Danny Miller off the two really good players off that team. But we had a really good nucleus coming back. And I said, you know, this is going to be interesting to try to get them ready to play, you know, next year, that type of thing. But two weeks later, I was walking by the weight room. Uh, we had um, guys in there lifting weights on their own because we were going to start within three weeks after that game. But they were already going in there and they were playing pickup games. And so I knew we had a chance. And it was funny going into that year. I don't, I never did that, um, but I, I really felt we could win the national championship. And I didn't know, obviously, every team in the country, how good they were or who they had or whatever. But I thought we were good enough to win a national championship in 2002. How much of success is getting the right people on the bus versus once they're on the bus, figuring out what to do with them? Yeah, they're the right people. Uh, they're at a certain level. And now can you get, you, you know, you really have a good nucleus. You know, you have good people, but that's not good enough to win a championship. Probably you got to get to that next level. And that's when you find out you really have good people. If they're willing with a lot of success to still work hard enough to get to the next level. And as you think about coaching, was there anything that you intentionally did to make sure that you mentally were where you needed to be. I keep going back to what you were saying is it didn't matter what was going on in my day. I knew that when practice started, I needed to be there. I'm just curious if you had any systems or processes that would help you be at your best when you needed to be. Uh, I think you can fall in love with with doing uh, an ESPN piece or, uh, 
you know, some alumnus wants to have lunch for an hour and a half the day that you're supposed to have practice. I never did any of that stuff during the day because I my, my my job I felt the guys that I recruited the guys who were decided to come to Maryland my job was to take care of them make them the best players they could be the best team they could be and I never got caught up in that crap even even when we won the national championship I just stayed resolved that we were you know my my job was to get ready for practice every day in other words you walk into practice and it's they don't want to be as good of assistants as I had, and I had great assistant coaches. They didn't come to Maryland to be coached by your assistant coaches. And you see a lot of head coaches, well, I'm going recruiting today. You take practice talking to your assistant coach. I never missed a practice to go recruiting. And I got criticized for that. But at the same time, we probably maxed out as a team most of the time because they knew me, I knew them, and no holds barred. You know, you start practice, and um, it, it was um, it, it, it was – Probably some of the best times in my life as a coach were not the games, but they were practices because you could you could feel your team getting better. You know, you just knew you walked off the practice floor and, damn, that was good today. You know, we, we got a chance. You know, and sometimes a light bulb goes off on a particular day and you say, we can be good. You know, I was really worried about this team, but we, we can be good. And that's a great feeling when you're coaching because you knew that everybody had to work together to make that happen. You know, it's interesting as you talk about coaching, it's kind of similar to playing for you. It's like I just showed up. I was there every day. I was present. I made sure that I was focused on serving them and putting them in positions to be successful. And the noise of whatever was going on on the outside world, if it wasn't helping me get from where I am and where I want to go, then I would not necessarily give that stuff that much attention. I was good at that, you know, just... um because we, we were we were fighting some battles uh, internally in the athletic department in addition to having to play the teams that you play when you're in the ACC. And uh, that made the job more difficult. But at the same time, once again, that goes back to growing up, having that chip on your shoulder, trying to prove that you're good enough to play, good enough to be considered a, you know, a college player. All, all those things go into that where nobody's going to win. You, you know, I'm not going to lose a game because of – outside people or you know the the way things were run administratively i'm going to i'm going to you might beat us because you're better than we are and that guy's a better coach or whatever but you're not going to beat us because i let other people get involved and take away from what i was trying to do you mentioned being a captain when you were a player and then you had a lot of players who were three four-year guys who i'm sure were captains what makes a great leader I think the big thing is example. Um, if players know that you do everything you can to get ready to play, and you don't have to be a great player because I wasn't, but they knew that I was ready to play every game. I was there every practice, before practice, ready to go, and I would do whatever it took to win, and I think that last thing is the big thing. In other words, if I didn't take any shots in a game but yet played great defense, got the ball to people, rebounded as well as I could as a guard, if I did all those things, guys, and it's a gradual thing. It, it's not the guy that stands there and claps every time a – you know, the coach calls you in for a huddle or whatever. That That's, you know, a lot of times that, that stuff doesn't mean anything. And it, it's the guys that put it out there on the floor. That's that's why, you know, Steve Blake, Juan Dixon, they were, they were great co-captains. That's why Byron Mouton could be a very good captain, you know, of a team because they knew. They, they, everybody knew how, how those guys felt about things and they were going to do whatever it took to win. And I'm just curious about this. So when I went to Syracuse freshman year, they won it. And then the next year, they had this heralded class. 
they had, you know, all these guys who were big time players and they came in as freshmen. I think there was like four or five of them. And that class for four years really struggled. And I think I might be right, but you guys won it all. And you had this more heralded class come in. Am I wrong about that as far as the year after you guys won it all? Uh, yeah, we had some good guys come in. We still had um, people left like Drew Nicholas. Steve Blake, senior year was 2003. And uh, we were a jump shot away from going to Elite Eight that year. Uh, Steve missed a jump shot against Michigan State down in Texas uh, to go to the Elite Eight. And, you know, we, we were still pretty good that year. But that was a combination of guys, you know, that, that had been there. Taj Holden, Ryan Randall, for example, got a chance to play. Um, and Drew Nicholas became a very good player for us. He was a backup guard. I think my question is, though, when you bring in new players into a team that now is a championship-caliber team, do things change as far as how you coach? Or are you like, we're going to do it the same way? And I just from the outside looking in was always curious about how expectations can impact a culture or a team. Oh yeah. Expectations are, uh, once you win it, the bars change, you know, the bar becomes very high and we had some really good teams that didn't have the same success in the NCAA tournament, but at the same time, they were good teams. Uh, you know, the, the 2010 team with, um, Gravis Vasquez, that was one of the greatest performances I ever saw, Gravis' senior year. We won our last seven league games to tie Duke for the ACC championship regular season, and Duke won the national championship that year. And, you know, he he was just incredible. But, you know, guys like, uh, you know, uh, Eric Hayes and, um, you know, just Dino Gregory, uh, Landon Milburn, guys that never got the attention – we were good. It was funny. We lost Michigan State again. We lost in the last second shot out in Spokane. Um, and that same time we were playing, the winner of that game was looked like we were going to play Kansas because Kansas was playing Northern Iowa. Northern Iowa beat Kansas. So Michigan State got to beat them. And then they had to play Tennessee, who was good, but no, no better than we were. And that got them to the Final Four. So that, that's how it goes in the NCAA tournament. Um and um, but it, it was great. Uh, I, I enjoyed coaching those guys because uh, they came from nowhere. We weren't very good early that year, and we got really good in 2010. As you look back now, you're you're doing TV. You get to work uh, in the athletic department. You play golf. Uh, what do you know now that maybe you didn't know uh, when you were in it? And you were, you know, as you said, you weren't paying attention to the noise and you were sort of had tunnel vision on what you were coaching. Is there anything you've learned being out of the sport? Yeah, I, uh, you know, the, the big thing is there, there's, there are other things out there, but that's probably a good thing, you know, that I, I wasn't concerned with any, any of that noise or whatever. You know, I just, I just was totally focused on coaching. And um, the, the thing that um, you don't realize uh, well, while you're coaching, at least for me, I, I didn't realize what I'd miss when I wasn't coaching. You, you miss the locker room. You, you miss practice. Uh, the games are the games. You know, it's, it, I would never say it's not fun walking out in front of 15,000 or whatever, you know, for a big game and you like the competition and all that. But really, you, you miss the, uh, what you were, which was a teacher. You, 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 as a coach, good teacher, bad teacher, whatever, you you know, you are a teacher whether you want to be or not. And I, I miss that aspect because I did it for a long time. And, um, you know, not not 
having that now. There, there's, there, you know, but I, I, the way I handle that is to look and say I was lucky. I got to coach in, you know, the, three of the major conferences, the Big East, the Big Ten, and the ACC. Uh, I coached against every good coach that coached during that era, you know, during that time. So I knew where I was as a coach. You know, I, I, in other words, I, I didn't say I wish I did this, I wish I did that. Sure, you, 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 you remember some games that you could have done something different, maybe won the game, whatever. But at the same time, I knew what I did. I, I knew I gave everything I had. And you really can't do anything more than that, you know. And I, you realize that more when you get away, like, okay, what would you have done differently? Uh, you know, maybe recruited that kid or, or did this. But in terms of effort, no, I'm, I'm satisfied. And getting inducted in the Hall of Fame, what did that mean to you, and, and how did you feel about that? Incredible. Uh, I was inducted into the College Basketball Hall of Fame and the Naismith uh, Basketball Hall of Fame the same year, 2014. First person, first coach ever to, to have that happen. And You know, Naismith is worldwide. I mean, that's, that's the ultimate, uh, to be in that Hall of Fame. I mean – I never forget. I had to give my speech up there, and I looked down the audience, and David Stern was uh, being inducted, the former commissioner of the NBA. And I look out there, and there's Larry Bird, Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson. <laughs> They're all sitting on end seats because most of those guys had knee problems by then, and so they put them there. And so you, you know, they were just on my sight line, and I'm trying, you know, and I'm thinking I'm in a Hall of Fame with those guys. You know, it's it's pretty cool. And I used to tell my grandkids when they were young that. Yeah, I got in. I was I was a really good player. <laughs> That's why I got in. And now they laugh. They they remember me saying that. So they figured you out. Oh yeah. So uh, I think that's a beautiful place for us to stop. So first of all, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and uh, talking to me when I bumped into you at Harris Teeter. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't want to inspire others to just go up to you and, and just start chatting. But as I said in the beginning, uh, Maryland basketball, I had a shirt growing up that said, Joe Smith, enough said. Joe that Smith. was my favorite one. And then, you know, growing up with those guys, it's just, you. I remember playing video games with that Simpkins, Rhodes, uh, hip team. Uh, as well and then a lot of great memories just being at Coldfield House for camp or uh, as a fan and so a lot of fond memories <laughs> now it's I think a football field but a lot of yeah. <laughs> a lot yeah. of fond memories there and then uh, at Xfinity Center or Comcast Center over the years and, and you were a big part of that being a special experience as a fan and so I always want I just want to thank you for creating or helping to create that culture and that intensity and what I'd love to do is just give you a platform if there's something that you think deserves to be promoted um, something that you're passionate about uh, feel free to promote it here and hopefully we can get some more eyeballs to that well there, there's um, first of all the University of Maryland it's a great university it's a great research university and now being in the Big Ten you're in there with a lot of large research universities, which the ACC was a, a, a different conference. And uh, nobody should ever doubt what a great university the University of Maryland is because uh, you, you look at the money they receive from the government, things like that, to do research. And it, it's a very important part of, um, you know, progressing for this area and for a lot of people. And then the other thing is we always had a thing called uh, Coaches versus Cancer. It wasn't the Jimmy V Foundation. It was Coaches versus Cancer. You see coaches wear uh, basketball shoes instead of regular shoes. Uh, it's, I think it's just weak, in fact. And what, the, what that does is all, all the money goes to cancer research, and that's Division One, Two, Three. high schools get involved, uh, things like that. And since its inception in the early 90s, I think it raised over like $120 million, and mm -hmm. that money goes directly to cancer research. And, 
you know, so many people have been affected by cancer uh, that, you know, whatever we can do as coaches, we were, you know, I was glad to do it. I was honored to be national champ- chairman of that for a couple of years. And uh, that's not something you, you, you talk a lot about while you're, while you're there, but uh, you do have a platform where you can do some good. And I know a lot of coaches do a great deal of charity work that really kind of gets lost in the shuffle as the season goes on. Awesome. Well, thank you again for your time. Appreciate it. And looking forward to maybe seeing you out at I'll Xfinity be at Harris Center. Teeter. <laughs> at Harris Teeter. Two for one orange juice. You know. And they have uh, $6. You can get an entree and two sides. So Not I guess bad. this is sponsored by Harris Teeter. There you go. I'll call them up and see <laughs> if they'll sponsor. Uh, thank you so much for the time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. I think uh, you have to love what you do, number one, because hours don't mean anything in coaching. If you have to work 14 hours, you work 14 hours. I mean, it's not, um, you know, it's not something you, you can look at as nine to five or whatever. And then you like working with who you're working with. I mean, I think about it for 44 years, I got to work with people 18 to 22 years old. And it's really cool because you see them change. You know, the guy that's 18 is a certain way. And by the time they're 22, you hope, you know, they've developed well enough to be successful when they get out of uh, college or whatever. And, you know, and you have you, you, you have your ups and downs. You have kids that, you, you know, you really believed in that really let you down. You know, they never finished uh, school, whatever, and things like that. But at the same time, um, you were doing something you love to do. And I, I think for anybody to be successful or to, to max out what you're trying to do, you have to like it. You, you can't. You can't do something. You know. I, I, you know. And it, at my age now, I feel sorry for some of the guys who went to high school. With, they hated their job for 40 years. They did it because they were making good money. They had to provide for their family. You know. I understand all that, but they never really enjoyed getting up and going to work. <laughs>